Um, this is Ira from Iron Sports. We're talking to Mark Canizaro, uh, the New York Post longtime writer, but he has a book out called Seven Days in Augusta, Behind the Scenes of the Masters. Thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Ira. How you doing? I'm doing good, doing good. We're just trying to talk sports. I know this is a really bad, you know, tough time for everybody, and we're just trying to, to come out. I'm encouraging people to read. I mean, this is a, don't just watch the news every day and just, you know, see what the news are. Just these, they, they, we have great authors with great sports books. If you love sports, just get yourself immersed in a book, and then for hours you just enjoy reading these books. And, and Mark, you just came out with this tremendous book about the Masters. I know we're, the Masters pushed back this year, but you've been to 25 straight Masters, so you definitely have a lot of stories to tell. I do, and I've been, you know, really fortunate uh, to to do that. To be honest with you, because you know, as as you know, Ira, it's that's it, a, you know, the, I think the thing about Augusta and the Masters that's so makes it so unique is that it's it's first of all, you can't just go play Augusta. You can't go call up, or you know, you have to have you have to know somebody who's a member there just to you know get through the gates. And uh, it's also, in my opinion, uh, having covered pretty much every sport around the globe. Um, I think it's the hardest ticket in sports to to get is for a Masters ticket. So, so many people have not been lucky enough to be there, you know, get a ticket and go go whether whether it's just for a day or a practice round or anything. So, you know, there's it's almost to me there's almost like a, a like a mythological vibe to the to, to the Masters in Augusta National because people haven't seen it. They've just seen what they've seen on television. And uh, so, what I tried to do with the book was. Not only talk about you know and, and relive some of the incredible things I've seen that actually took place on the golf course, you know, like Tiger's win last year and his win in '97 when he kind of introduced himself to the world and uh, you know everything in between. Um, you know, I also try to kind of blend in some some interesting stuff that maybe you, you don't see on television. You know, just some some of the odd stories about what goes on around the town and, and things like that. And um, so I try to do a little bit of that. And you know. I did a chapter on the Butler Cabin, which is almost again, it's kind of like almost this kind of mythical place. Nobody really knows what's the Butler Cabin. I, to be honest with you, I, I I think I covered seven or eight masters before I even knew where the Butler Cabin was. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so it's just kind of a it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff to see down there, and 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 uh, um, I've been really lucky to be able to have covered those those amounts of masters and seen some amazing things, and in, in my Years as a sports writer, you know, if if I'm putting a top ten list of the most amazing things or, that I've ever covered, you know, a good number of those Masters uh, tournaments would be in that top ten. And some of those odd, the, the the unique features of the Masters. How about like the Champions Dinner? I mean, what other tournament has you know you don't have in the Super Bowl that Bill Belichick gets to pick the meal for everybody else? I mean, it's very yeah. such a, it's so unique. And you went into detail about what the players do and all the issues with the Champions Dinner. And I, I thought that was a great chapter in terms of you know if you were talking about food and, and what each each golfer wanted to have for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, that's that's one of those traditions that they have at Augusta every year. Um, and it's it's you know other tournaments have champions dinners, but this is like the ultimate champions dinner. Like all of the past champions who are living, generally show up. I'm not sure if there's there's rarely, if ever, a time unless there's a health issue or something like that that a past champion does not go to that dinner on the Tuesday night of Masters Week. Um, you know the seven days in Augusta title actually is is it's literally I kind of I segmented it out to Monday through Sunday, the Monday the start of the week and. You know the practice rounds and what takes place right through the championship final round Sunday, and I try to coincide some some uh, 
um, some of the subchapters with those days. And Tuesday, under the Tuesday, was a subchapter of the Champions Dinner. And I talked to a bunch of the you know past champions that have been there. And you know, Phil Mickelson, for example, he's a guy who loves to tell stories and is a big you know. He loves to tell everybody, you know, how much he knows about everything and whatnot. And, and uh, that's one place, he said, that's the one night where I don't want to tell any stories. I just want to sit back and listen to the stories of these, you know, these past legends, you know, that have won. Uh, you know, the, the old timers, you know, that's what he gets a kick out of instead of telling the stories. <clears throat> so, you know, and the other unique thing is, the, as you referenced, is the, uh, you know, the past champion, um chooses the menu for that night and uh you know tiger woods famously had cheeseburgers and milkshakes and french fries for you know when he won in 90 after, after excuse me after he won in 90, 97 um you know a lot of the champions try to you know I, I know phil nicholson for one of his more recent of his three i believe it was his most recent of his three masters victories um he he purposely put a spanish uh ensemble together for for his uh for his meal it, to honor Seve Ballesteros, who was always, you know, was one of his idols when he was a kid. And Seve was, I don't know if he had just passed or he was not in good health or something. I can't remember exactly offhand at the very moment. But, you know, he did that to honor Seve. And uh, so those kind of things are unique. And the other thing that guys have talked about is how nerve-wracking it is because they have to stand up and kind of, you know, they're the host of the dinner. So they have to stand up and, have you know, say a little speech to start the dinner. And you know that could be pretty nerve-wracking. You know, like for somebody like Tiger or Phil, who's you know, who's they have multiple green jackets in the in the in the locker. Um, you know, it's a little bit. You know, uh, I don't want to say been there, done that, because that kind of diminishes a little bit. But you know, for a guy like Patrick Reed or Char- Charles Schwartzel or somebody who's a one-timer, you know, one-off kind of guy. You know, it's pretty nerve-wracking. So, uh, how, who goes, uh, how many? It's guests? one of those places you'd like to be inside. You'd like to be a fly on the wall at one of those dinners, see, which unfortunately we we don't have access to. And does do they bring anybody, or are they just them, it's just the champions? Are they allowed to bring yeah, friends? No, and no, no plus ones. It's all it's a boys' <laughs> night out. Um, it's 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 all it's all the guys with the green jackets, basically, and the and the the club chairman, um, who right now is Fred Ridley. You know, prior to that was uh, Billy Payne. So uh, yeah, it's. Uh, um, Mickelson had a funny anecdote. I won't. It's a long story, but I'll keep it very short. But essentially, nobody is allowed. To, I mean, they are they are militant about having no cell phones at Augusta National on the grounds. Okay, <clears throat> whether it's whether it's on a regular day or if it's tournament day, whatever. And uh, Phil had told a story that a bunch of the guys at the, at the dinner table thought he was completely BSing about. You know, he had some sort of anic- some sort of factual nugget that everybody was like, "You're full of it." You don't know that's complete bull. You know. And Billy Payne pulled his cell phone out of his pocket, his jacket pocket, and said, "You know, I'm going to Google this and just check this out." <laughs> and Phil was like, well, "Wait a minute, you you're not supposed to use a cell phone at, at Augusta National." And Billy Payne says, "I'm the chairman. I can use a cell phone." <laughs> so uh, you know, just goofy stuff like that that takes place behind these behind the walls. There is, you know, really fun stuff. And then you mentioned about the green jacket. I mean, I can't think of, besides the Stanley Cup, when the players are allowed to take the cup around, I mean, the idea that you can have the jacket for for a year uh, and wear it wherever you want, and then you're not allowed to take it out. You had so many funny stories about people who won the jacket, what, where they wore it, and things like that. It's just it's so unique to the Masters to have this green jacket, and everyone knows what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, to me, it's the most, it's, if it's not the most unique 
uh, prize in in professional sports, it's got to be right up there. I mean, I'm a huge you know Stanley Cup guy. I love the cup. I I, I always equate the Stanley Cup to the to the claret jug at the British Open because it's kind of like. You know, it's a similar thing where you 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 can bring you know the team gets to have the cup and they give it around all year in the NHL and and the same thing for the 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 champion golfer the golfer of the year who wins the British Open at at Augusta at the Masters you wear that jacket I mean it's like you know I mean some of the stories you referenced you know and you know Phil Mickelson was you know wore his out to a Krispy Kreme drive-thru taking his kids to get uh, get donuts the next day. You know, Tiger talked about sleeping in his jacket, you know, the, you know, the first couple of nights that he had it. Um, and, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, Sergio Garcia would wore it out, you know, at, at a uh, um, when he was kind of doing the kind of official ceremonial kickoff to, uh, to a, 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 a huge soccer match in Spain. Uh, um, Barcelona and uh, Madrid and Real Madrid and, and Barcelona FC, you know, so he you know, he was over there wearing his green jacket in front of 100,000 people in the stadium. You know, some of the guys wear it to Wimbledon, you know. It's, so it's just a really fun, you know, thing for guys to do with it. And uh, and after that year, you're not after that year that you've won you've had you know, you're you're the champion. It goes in the locker and you you do not wear that jacket outside the club unless you're at the club. That's it. Um so that's another thing that makes it unique. There, are, there aren't there aren't Augusta members sashaying around, uh, you know, the, the nice restaurants in Augusta, Georgia, wearing their jackets out for dinner. That doesn't happen. They does they don't leave the property. So it's 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 you know, it's a it's a funny, unique um, kind of quirky tradition there. We're talking to Mark Panizzaro, the author of Seven Days in Augusta. is just out in bookstores today. Of course, you can order online and order an electronic version or, or, or hard copy. But, Mark, you're just talking about, you know, wearing out in, in Augusta. And you have some just great stories in the book about the town and how this the town, just you take this whatever, small town, small, medium-sized town, just comes alive and all the restaurateurs and the, everything from John Daly at a Hooters. And it was, it's yeah. a great, it's, it's, it, it has, the town itself is different. I mean, you could have the, difference with the unique nature of the club but then the town itself has their own stories there's no question i mean that that one week a year that those seven days in augusta to steal my to my my title is that makes that town's year that city's year you know every 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 year um you know i did one of the chapters i do is on the and on a kind of a honky-tonk steak joint that's uh, right down the street from from magnolia lane uh you can almost you know hit a golf ball into his parking lot that's called uh T-bones, and it's just been the they call it the unofficial 19th hole of Augusta because all the caddies hang out there and drink and eat all night, and the fans flock there, and players have gone over the years. You know, Fred Couples has has over the years has has given uh, um, he brings a, a, a you know a Masters flag autographed from the locker room um, every year, almost every year to to to, to this guy Mark who owns the place, and uh, you know. It's just such a unique, you know. I, I, Mark, the owner of the place, told me. I asked him. I said, you know, what? Just roughly, what's your business for that one week? Like, what does that do compared to the entire year? And he essentially told me that one week, one week of business at T-Bones, is takes care. Of, you know, that's that's the equivalent of maybe a month and a half, two months of, of business wow. at the at, at the at the at the restaurant. And uh, you know, the other interesting dynamic there, you know, Ira, is they. You know, the culture there is so much that so many people just rent their houses for the week. There's not a lot of hotels that are down there. I mean, you know, they got you got your courtyard Marriotts and things like that, and 
Hampton Inns and whatnot, but there's not a lot of large hotels there, you know. Um, downtown, you've got a couple of little, you know, like full-service Marriott's and stuff, but, you know, one's, one's full-service Marriott. But most people who stay there are staying in rental homes, and uh, those people who rent their ho- houses out are making, you know, in some cases, you know, a half a year's mortgage or maybe an entire year. They're paying their entire year's mortgage off by renting their house out for one week. Uh, I do it, you know, I've been for 25 years. I've never, I've rented a house, you know, for 24 out of the 25 years I've done the Masters, I've rented a house. The first year I was there, um, which was a, a lesson in price gouging, I stayed at a Days Inn uh, that <laughs> normally cost $25 a night, and they were charging me two two fifty a night. Uh, and that was in 1993, my, 1994, my first Masters. But every year of the year since, I've, I've shared houses with other colleagues, and we rent them. And, uh, you know, I've rented for the same guy, a uh, particular gentleman, um, for the last four or five years. They're just about a half mile from the club. And he grew up, that was what he grew up in. When he was a kid, his dad would rent their house out, and they would go on vacation for the week. And they would collect their, you know, week's worth of rent and uh, and go on vacation. And it would pay for their vacation for a family of four or five or six or whatever it is. So it, it's just a very unique, you know, and that's why right now, I mean, you know, let's hope that they do have a Masters there. I mean, selfishly, we all want the Masters to take place. Um, you know, but I mean, you know, I would hate to see it not take place in October like it's rumored to be rescheduled for because I'd hate to see that city lose that one week of revenue because it's, you know, it it it's it could be debilitating. Also, to have a Masters without fans, so that would be other, you know, one of the options to say, let, you know, not have the fans even at the tournament would just take you know, kill that town in terms of not having that event. Yeah, absolutely, because obviously that's where all your business is coming from is those fans driving up and down Washington Road, which is the main drag, you know, on which the uh, the course is uh, located. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I think, you know, when there was, you know, I mean, obviously, when 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 Augusta canceled the Masters. It was in early stages. It was you know, obviously right around when the PGA Tour was shutting everything down. I was actually down in Florida, you know, covering, I covered the Arnold Palmer tournament and the Arnold Palmer Invitational. I was at the Players' Championship when they canceled it. Uh, so uh, uh, the Masters canceled pretty quickly after that. I don't think the Masters wants to conduct a Masters without fans. That's my opinion. I, you know, that's not anybody there telling me that. But I just think that, you know, their patrons, as they call them, are <laughs> such a fabric of what they do that week. Um, I don't think they. I don't think they would want to do that. So you know, you mentioned earlier about the Masters tickets, and I've I've been to a zillion sporting events. I've been to six U.S. Opens, and I, this year I was actually going to go to the Masters. It's my first time to go, and I've been to the PGA oh. three times. And uh, I mean, in terms of like fifty NBA Finals games, fifty World Series games, a dozen Super Bowls. But so the Masters was one of those bucket list things that I really hadn't just had didn't go to, and this was the year I was planning to go. But the tickets are they're only three hundred seventy five dollars if you can for the whole week if you can get yeah. those three hundred seventy. That's that's the entire week is for three seventy five. But you know you're not really paying that three seventy five. It's crazy. That's the one thing that Augusta National does uh, is they do not gouge uh, whether it's the cost of the tickets. Um, whether it's you know the food that you buy on on the premises or the the merchandise, none of it is has crazy markups like the other tournaments do and the other all of the sporting events that I've covered big sporting events do um but you know it's a matter of getting your hands on that three hundred and seventy five dollar week long pass that's the that's the trick ira 
Uh, did you have a ticket for the week, or did you? How did you? What was your? Situation? I was working with someone to get in. I was going to go to the final four on Monday and then go get at, I, and actually come. Just I wanted to go to some of the practice rounds like Tuesday. I was going yeah. to Tuesday's practice just to get my feet wet in terms of the tournament. Well, yeah, that's it's funny. Some people some people prefer to go to the practice rounds because it's a little more accessible. Um, you can maybe could see a little bit more. Um, you know, the the par three contest is always on Wednesday. Uh, which is a really, really cool, unique thing. Um, I do a chapter on that as well. Uh, but, you know, some people like to go to the tournament just to see that par-3 tournament. Um, you know, others don't want to go to the par-3 tournament because there's so many people there, it's hard to see. You know, so it's everybody has their, you know... I, I tell you what, what what interesting tradition is, a lot of the patrons at Augusta, I've seen it for years, I see people streaming out of the property to go home on the Sunday like after lunch, because they want to go watch the final round on television because they feel like they can see more. You know, they can see they can see it better. Um, it's amazing. You know, that, that really is an interesting culture that, that I've seen for 25 years. So, so many people actually go home, whether it's to watch the entire back, you know, final round on TV, or maybe they leave to watch the back nine on you know on TV, the final nine holes. But uh, I mean, listen, that's not to say the place is empty because it's packed. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just you know, it's a it's a it's a tremendous you know sporting spectator experience um and they've done amazing things there you know every year they go there something something new is done you know i mean their merchandise facility now is like a walmart it's just gigantic <laughs> um you know so but again and you know you could buy stuff and you can go and they right outside the, the the merchandise facility they have places where you can go ship your stuff home so you're not lugging it around they've got everything figured out over there you know well, you know, the one thing I loved about the book is that uh, this stage is so grand and that you have some of the greatest players to ever play be, be have success on this stage, like Tiger Woods and, and Phil Mickelson's, and, and people not have success, the Greg Normans. And I think it, but what their success is magnified and their failures are amplified, or however you want to say that. But, I mean, clearly Tiger's emergence in 97, I mean, that for the golf, for Tiger, for the Masters. I mean, and you just covered that in detail in terms of the effect of the fact that he, you know, had the lowest score ever, had a 12-shot victory margin, and it was just um, the, the tremendous atmosphere, and you really covered that in the book well. Yeah, I mean, that ch that changed, you know, that 1997 Masters win for Tiger, I mean, that changed the golf world. That changed the face of the entire sport, um, you know, economically, um, interest-wise, I mean, purses started going up like crazy. You know, Tim Fincham at that time was the was the commissioner, and you know, I mean, he was you know he was there when it just everything just exploded. And uh, um, you know, some of my favorite stuff that I you know that I unearthed in just doing some interviews was just talking to some of the people that you know, like, like Paul Azinger, for example, who's a very very colorful character and and obviously a tremendous broadcaster on air and you know was a great player in his own right when he played you know he played one round with tiger uh during that masters uh they played they, at the, back then they used to repair after every round so he played a round i believe it was the first round with tiger and he said he he told me he said he'd kind of heard about the he thought it was like a myth you know the <laughs> kid that hits it so far and you know, and Azinger's kind of a brash guy, you know, and Azinger told me, he's like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I, w I want to see this stuff up close and personal. You know, I want to see what this is really all about. He said he saw Tiger hit about two balls, you know, with irons 
in that round, and he he literally looked within himself and said to himself, "I'm never going to win a golf tournament again with this guy on tour." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of that was his. You know, I mean, that's what everybody saw. I mean, back then, Tiger was longer than everybody everybody was. He hit the ball higher than everybody could. He could do things with the golf ball that nobody else could. Obviously, a lot of guys have caught up to him now because and technologies help that as well. Uh, and certainly, his physical failings, you know, have 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 brought him back to the pack as well. But back then, I mean, he was a unicorn, man. I mean, he was like, you know, I always equate Tiger, um, Ira, to, and not just at the Masters, but anywhere, because everybody wants a glimpse of Tiger, you know. And I always, and I, it's like a circus. It's like the rare circus animal behind the big big fence. You want to peer over the fence just to have a look at it. You know what I'm saying? Just to see what this incredible, you know, force is or whatever. And uh, I feel like that's, you know, pe- people have a fascination with Tiger because of that. And that all really started in 97 when he, you know, exploded onto the scene at, at Augusta. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got some really fun uh, descriptive recollect- recollections from players, you know, you know, from that 97, you know, win of his and just kind of how he came on tour. And, um, you know, that was that was a lot of fun doing that. We're talking to Mark Cannizzaro, New York Post writer who wrote the book Seven Days in Augusta Behind the Scenes in the Masters. Uh, Mark, I've been reading your columns in the Post for years. I love how you always talk about these obscure golf courses that no one would know about and you bring it to life like it's almost Augusta. So I, I enjoy every of your writing. But another character that you bring out and we are familiar with down here in West Palm Beach is Phil Mickelson. And uh, the story that you had about that one time he was – on Tuesday with Tom Brady and Tom Brady was like, let's you know throw some balls. And you were, <laughs> and that was a great story that I guess for like an hour, Tom Brady was throwing balls and Mickelson was catching it like on the 10th uh, fairway or something like that. You know, this is my, might be my favorite part of the, of doing the book. Um, I, uh, Phil gave me about an hour or so. We, 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 we got together several times to, you know, to talk for me to interview him for the book. And, uh, at last year's Players Championship uh, at Sawgrass, um, he invited me to come over to the place he was staying, and uh, and we sat down over coffee for an hour, and just you know he rattled off a bunch of anecdotes and cool things like that, and we were just kind of just finishing up, and uh, uh, he was into it, you know, and which was which is always makes it more rewarding when you're doing those kind of things, because a lot of times when we're interviewing people, you feel like you're kind of taking their time, and you feel guilty about that or whatever, and. And I was very appreciative of the time that Phil was giving me. And we're just kind of wrapping up. And we really just kind of like, okay, Phil, that's great. Thanks. Uh, you know, he's going to head over to the course to, you know, get ready for his round that day. And he goes, oh, no, wait a minute. He goes, I got one, I got one more anecdote. You got a minute? You got one more minute? Let me, I got this cool anecdote. It just came into my mind. And it was the Brady anecdote. And it's my favorite anecdote of the entire book. And it essentially was, you know, Phil every year goes to Augusta, um, maybe three, four, or five weeks before the tournament, you know, maybe, you know, just to get, the, the conditions aren't the same, but just to get a little feel and do some practice up there. It's been a ritual of his for for a number of years now. And he'll sometimes go up over the years, he's gone up with some fellow players like Keegan Bradley or Ricky or, you know, a couple of the boys will go up and play, or maybe some corporate guys that he knows or whatever. And on this particular occasion, him and him and Tom Brady were sharing a cabin down the 10th hole, and uh, and hanging out for a few days, playing 36 a day, having dinners, drinking some good wine, and, you know, just hanging, you know, working out in the morning. So he told me that it was one morning, they were getting up really early to go play golf, and, and they were working out before they go out and play golf at the gym. And they're going down to the gym, and Phil, Phil says that, uh, Brady says, hey, he goes, would you mind having a, you know, after we get out of the gym, having a little toss with me, a little football <laughs> toss. I got, he goes, I'm, 
I'm going out to uh, California next week to have a you know to throw with uh, Julian Edelman, who's one of his Patriot receivers at the time. And I just want to, you know, to keep my arm loose. And Phil was like, you know, I won't use the ex- expletives, but he was like, are you, ex- you know, are you freaking kidding me? You're the greatest quarterback of all time. Of course I'm going to have a toss with you. Let's go. So they're out now, you know, down off off the 10th fairway, and, and it's like dusk, you know, uh, or, you know, it's, it's, it's early morning, I should say. And uh, the sun's just rising, so it's, the light's not great. And Phil is telling me the story about how Brady is just whistling these balls at him. And, you know, Phil Mixon's got to play the Masters in a month and change, right? And he's telling me about Brady drilling the ball at him. And he's like, it's too macho to say, hey, can you lighten it up a little bit? Probably broke his so finger. He's, you know, so he's like, he tells me he's trying to catch the ball with his fingertips. He said a couple times it hit him right in the palm, and he felt like he felt pain shooting up his arm. I'm just like thinking to myself, can you imagine? It, that, that would be so Phil Mickelson if he had a withdrawal from a Masters. Because he was having a catch with Brady, and Brady threw the ball too hard at him, and he hurt himself. You know, uh, so it was just a fun. I mean, it's, you know, that to me, I just love that. I love that. I just, just, I'm just picturing that is is makes that that anecdote so fun. And Phil being, you know, too much of a tough guy to tell him to to lighten, lighten it up a little bit. You know. Well, the other thing about the Masters we said is is the pl- players that have blown leads. I mean, we we, we know about Greg Norman in '96. You did write about how he lost a six shot lead to Faldo. Jordan Spieth, who the year before had won it. And then at a five-shot lead, but then uh, bogey at uh, 10 and 11, and yeah. then a quadruple bogey at 12 just threw away the tournament. And Rory. Then, and then Rory in 2011. I mean, these are, you know, the, the best golfers ever, and, and they had these horrendous moments. And if you bring up to them, what's your, if you ask them, like, what's your worst moment, they probably point to that Masters collapse because of the importance of the tournament and the scope of the collapse. Yeah, it's no question. I mean, there's... It's funny, you know, Ernie Els, you mentioned some of the guys that had some close calls there. Now, Ernie didn't blow a lead, but Ernie Ernie had some, played really, really good golf at Augusta over the years. And that course was made for his game, and he was in the mix several times. And he just had his heart ripped out from, you know, from him. You know, Mickelson actually just stole the tournament from him in 04. You know, they were dueling down the back nine with birdies and eagles. It was just, it was some of the greatest theater, sporting theater I've ever seen in my life. And uh, that 04, you know, Masters when Phil won his first major. And Ernie was right there. And I, I interviewed Ernie last year, uh, at, actually at the Arnold Palmer Invitational, for this book. And, uh, and I, you know, I asked him about the Masters. And, and he's, you know, I said, you know, he, and he, he basically said it was, it was a bleeping nightmare for me. You know, he was pretty graphic. And I, and I said, I, and I, it took me aback. And I said, I said, so you don't really... Even though you never won there, I said, did you never really, you don't have that romantic vibe and, you know, <laughs> about Augusta. And he, he said, no, it was a freaking nightmare for me. He said, and he basically said, he goes, you've got guys like Tiger and Phil and, and Fred Couples and, you know, and the guys that, that Augusta has been good to, you know, the gods, so to speak, if you will, right? And then, then already said, you got like me and Greg Norman and Tom Weisskopf, who's another guy that was, you know, that, that had chances there. And, Never, you know, one of the great golfers of his generation, and never won there. And he goes, it just never, it just never treated us right, you know. And um, you know, Greg Norman was the top of that list. I mean, I never, you know, that I, you know, there's there's a couple of sporting events that will never leave my mind, and one of them was that '96 Masters when Norman lost that lead, and just the you could just feel it around the golf course, Ira. I mean, it just. I was out walking. I mean, I, I I was you know, 
out walking the golf course and I'm watching this unfold and, and it just it was uncomfortable, you know. It was like watching a car crash in slow motion and you, when you didn't really know what the result was going to be, but you had a pretty good idea what it was going to be. And uh, I'll just never forget, you know, being at Amen Corner when when Norman airmailed the green with his with his approach with which with his shot to the twelfth green, and the ball ended up in the azaleas, and they they're over there like doing a hunt and rescue for the ball. They can't find it. He's got to come all the way back across Ray's Creek and you know and hit another shot, you know, from the drop area. And uh, I just never forget that. And and what what stands with me more than anything about that 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 day is how Norman handled it afterwards. That'll be seared in my memory forever. Is the class, you know, and and just the way he handled it. Uh, he didn't run from it, you know. I mean, he just, you know, he was nothing but class, and he was stand up, and he, he answered every question. And uh, you know, I, I equated a little bit to a British Open in 99, 1999 when John Vandeveld blew the shot, blew the lead at the British Open at Carnoustie, and he handled himself in the same way. I still remember those two those two moments when those when those guys should have been hoisting the trophy. And they they threw it away, and uh, and they just you know part of them is in shock, but you know the inner part of them is acting with the class that they are, you know. And so I've never forget Norman for that, um, and uh, he, you know he'll never get over it. You know he'll never get over not winning the Masters. He might say he's gotten over it, but he'll never <laughs> till he goes to his grave. It's going to be part of him. We're talking to Mark Canizzaro, uh, seven days in Augusta, behind the scenes of the Masters on. Uh, True Oldies 95.9, 106.9. This is Iron Sports. Um, and then you finish the book with, uh, you, you wonder if Tiger, how he can replicate from 97 to come back and then even bookend it with something even more amazing with the, the 2019 Tiger. And you really went into detail. I mean, you were interviewed, I think you most interviewed every single golfer and asked them their opinion. It was just really great how you lay, I mean, I'm sort of, and I've seen read books about this and everything, but how you laid it out was perfect. Uh, just, just getting the excitement and just the awe that the other golfers had about what Tiger was doing. Yeah, you know, Ira, I think you know that whole day, that Sunday, the week was obviously special. But you never know what a golf tournament. You know, I just, I've covered so many golf tournaments where I haven't I haven't written a person's a certain person's name down the entire week, and then all of a sudden he appears on Sunday and wins the golf tournament. You know, so you, know, you didn't you didn't you didn't have the feel all week the Tiger was going to win the tournament, but he was he was he was in the mix. You know, and that. Alone makes it makes any tournament electric, and it makes Augusta even more electric. And uh, you know, when that Sunday came around, what I remember a couple things that I remember most about it was I remembered being out on the course when he was when he kind of hit the back nine, and uh, you know, Molinari had the lead, and Molinari had stabbed Tiger off, uh, if you remember, at at Carnoustie in the previous British Open uh, in previous July. Um, and he, you know, he was just seemed unflappable, guy that just didn't make the dumb mistake, you know. Um, and he was, you know, he was, his lead wasn't big, but I think it was two on Tiger and one on, if I'm not mistaken, on on the the next guys there. And all of a sudden, they get to 12, and Molinari hits a tee shot in the water, and it was like it just gave everybody life. And it, to me, it almost. Because all of a sudden, they, you know, he he walks off the twelfth green, and Molinari doesn't have the lead, you know, and Tiger is now tied for the lead, and I'm like, it's almost like Tiger turned into the Tiger who used to just close everybody out with with his, you know, with 
you know, like I always call it Mariano Rivera kind of closing speed, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, it's like when that moment happened on 12, Tiger just seized the moment and he just, you know, he did not make another mistake on the way in. Molinari made another mistake on 15, uh, hit a bad tee shot. Um, and Tiger, you know, he only shot 70 in the last day, but Tiger did what he did, you know, what he did for years to people. You know, he was the guy that didn't make the mistake while everybody else made the mistakes. And uh, he made the shot when he had to make the shot. And, uh, you know, when he got to 18, which is my greatest memory of of, uh, of that day, his reaction, his, his visceral reaction on 18 when he clinched it uh, was nothing like I'd ever seen. I've covered all 15 of his majors, that being the 15th. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I've never seen a reaction like that to me. There was such a release of emotion, and I think it was there was so many layers to it. You know, I think the first layer was the fact that he never, you know, thought he'd ever be in that position again to win another major, you know, with all those back injuries and surgeries that he was gone, you know, not to mention all of his personal issues that he had, you know, that kind of tore his life apart. Um, but, you know, the all the other thing was, the other element to it was he had his kids were standing greenside uh, with his mother and his girlfriend. And uh, his kids, you know, Tiger's been talking for years about the fact that his kids had never seen him, you know, win a major championship or win anything, really. And uh, that was incredible. And the reaction to the crowd was just, I mean, you saw it on television. You know, there was like a human tunnel of people when Tiger walked off 18, and they're chanting his name. And I was right there. I mean, it was just, I mean, you know, it was, you're, you're trying to catch your breath. It was so electric. And, uh, you know, a lot of those reactions that you referred to, you know, were just, you know, I it was fortunate enough to interview a lot of the players, his peers, friends and peers and foes even, and you know, including Molinari. You know, even guys like Brooks Kepka, who was right there, you know, and and uh, Xander Shoffley, who people forget was right there as well. These guys, I mean, they were they were a shot off, tied for lead, whatever, down the stretch. They were so awed by Tiger winning, it almost took the edge off of them not winning, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Because they were so they had a front row seat to it, you know, to that kind of history. Uh, and uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, certainly Kupka's gone on, you know, one, you know, he's won four majors, so he's not hurting for majors. <laughs> but, you know, the point being, you know, it just kind of like, you know, it just took the edge off to some degree because I think these guys were so taken aback by the history they witnessed and the fact that they were a part of it. And, they, you know, they had, you know, they had such a good seat for it, so to speak. Um, you know, there were just so many great things to it. And Joe LaCava, who's Tiger's caddy, um, who I, you know, full disclosure, have been I'm pretty good friends with, um, another one of my favorite things, and I'll stop rambling, is when Tiger, you know, sunk the winning putt to clinch it, um, he immediately goes to Joe and yells, we did it. And Joe, I get goosebumps just talking about it right now, and Joe said, and you, you don't get this part on TV, you could see on TV when Tiger says, we did it. Joe said to him, he goes, no, you did it. And that's like the essence of Lacava. He's the most unselfish, unassuming guy on the planet. You know, of anybody you'll meet in sports. And I just love, you know, that was a, that was a poignant moment to me. You know, and I remember, you know, long after that, you know, the, the tournament was over, out in the parking lot, just hanging with Joe at, at the car. He had the 18th flag stick in the car, and you know, Tiger's clubs, and he was kind of waiting for Tiger to emerge. And I, he was just kind of going over the day, and it was just, you know, those are moments that I cherish as a sports writer because. You know, those are things we get to see, and those are things that I hope that I'm able to convey to the readers, because they're not there to do that, so to speak. You know, they don't have that kind of access. 
you know. No, that's, I mean, uh, yeah, what you talk about, Joe Lakava is amazing. And because and, I've been to all these tournaments that he's been at. And when you see his interaction with Tiger and you, and you spell it out in the book about his talking to him and how he works with him, calms him down. And it's just, it's totally different than Steve Williams uh, and, 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 and an attitude, but also even with the fans, I mean, you know, Tiger's in the middle of a tournament every, in the, in like say the Genesis and then fans are screaming at him, all this other stuff. But LaCava sees like a bunch of little kids and he'll always throw like a glove, a, you know, yeah. some tease or something. He's, he is aware of what it is. And so he softens it. So someone, someone said the fans saying, Oh, Tiger didn't do this or Tiger didn't. LaCava has that nice, I mean, he's not confront, confrontation with the fans. He's embracing no. them, and that's what I think helps. And and he's he's perfect. And I, as you mentioned in the book, um, when Tiger was out for I guess three a whole year and a half and couldn't play, he didn't he didn't he wasn't a caddy for anyone. He said, "I'm your no. caddy." Whereas Steve, the problem with Steve Williams was that Tiger, you know, Steve wanted to be on another person's bag while exactly. hey, you're off. And, yeah, Joe. I mean, Joe. You know, Tiger said to Joe, "Go get another bag. I don't care. Go work for somebody. You can come back to me if you want. Whatever. If you don't, that's okay too." Um, and Joe was like, no, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait it out. He didn't want to do it. And, uh, you know, Joe is a extremely, obviously, you know, from these stories that, you, that, that we're telling or I'm telling, is an extremely loyal guy. And, uh, you know, he's become good friends with Tiger. I mean, Tiger's, you know, it's a, you know, Tiger's world is hard to, for any of us, you know, to understand because the guy can't go out in public, you know. I mean, he can barely go out in public, and if he does, he's got to, have a, you know, escape plan or whatever, you know what I mean? It's so, you know, Joe, there were times during that time when Tiger was recouping, when Joe would just go down to Florida and just hang with him in Florida or hang, go out on his boat with him and just BS about sports and watch sports on TV or whatever it is, you know, just to kind of hang with him and keep him company. And, uh, you know, that's just, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, that's why, you know, I mean, Joe LaCava was on Fred Couples' bag for 20 years, you know, I mean, that's unheard of for a caddy to be on somebody's bag for 20 years, you know, but that's the kind of guy Joe is, you know, he's not, you know, he's a special, special individual, you know, particularly as it, as it pertains to the sport he's in and, you know, the job he does, so to speak. Um, we've been talking to Mark Canazaro from the New York Post, Seven Days in Augusta, behind the scenes of the Masters. Awesome book, tremendous book. You have everybody has a lot of time. They're sitting at their house. I said, don't play video games. Don't watch TV uh, the whole day. Pick up a good, get this book. You can order it on Amazon, order it uh, online. It's a, it's a great book. And before we let you go, I mean, this, the Honda Classic is, you know, the big thing down here at West Palm Beach. And I know you've been here before. Just uh, some of your, you know, thoughts about the Honda and about this tournament. It's really, as it's, you know, has a 200,000 fans the last five years uh, has really been the central part of Palm Beach County. I'm a huge fan of the Honda. You know, I've been disappointed the last two years to see what's become of it because of the change in the PGA Tour schedule era. And, uh, you know, there's less, you know, I mean, I, listen, it's still a great social event for Palm Beach County there, obviously. Uh, but, you know, you have less media going there because the, the fields have weakened the last two years. Um you know, because of the fact that the WGC Mexico, you know, and the condensed, you know, the condensed schedule. When they moved the PGA to the to May, that really threw a monkey wrench into the into the tour schedule and players' schedules and what they were going to play and not play. And now, I selfishly speaking, my my one of my favorite runs of the year was to go down and do the Honda, and then go right down to Doral the following right, week and right. do the WGC down there. You know, and then obviously. With all the Trump stuff, they took they took you know the tour when you know left Doral and uh, now it goes to Mexico, so you don't have that little back to back thing and uh, you know so you know I think you know there's going to be there's there's a shift in the schedule I believe next year, um, so maybe the Honda will will get a better slot there. I'm, not, I, I'm I know they're I know they're moving 
things around where I think the the, the Arnold Palmer Invitational now goes a little bit earlier. Um, but I mean, listen, for what goes on at the tournament and on the site, you know, I don't. You probably don't see it as much, but I just think as far as the coverage, you know, it, it doesn't get the same kind of coverage it, 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 it did with, with the better fields. But I, I happen to love the whole vibe there because I, you know, I'm for the kind of the, for lack of a better term, like the Gen X kind of world of golf. You know, the, the fans being a little bit more vocal and, you know, the, the vibe, the vibe out on the 17. bear trap on seventeen. I mean, the bear yeah, I mean, the whole, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that that's fun. You know, I mean, that that brings people. You know, some purists, you know, you know, and the golfers probably don't like it. You know, it's, it's the same thing with, you know, it's kind of all started with 16 over at, uh, at, at TPC uh, Scottsdale there, you know, for the for the Phoenix Open. You know, and that, I love that stuff. I mean, it's, it, it makes it fun, you know, and it makes it more of an event. You don't like walking around a golf course where it's sleepy and there's like eight, eight people behind the ropes kind of following whomever, you know. So I think what they've created down there with the bear trap and at 17 there is fantastic. It's a great party, you know. For the most part, people people handle themselves properly. I mean, you know, you're going to have certain knuckleheads out there. They're going to, you know, yell in somebody's swing or whatever the case may be. But and the same thing at you know at at at, at Phoenix. But um, I love it. You know, I, I you know I, I stay on site at the you know at the at the resort there. So you know, I mean, selfishly speaking, I you know I walk out of my hotel room and I'm on the golf course and and the range and I'm right at work, so to speak. You know, so um, I, I I have not done I have not covered the tournament the last two years because of the way the schedules changed and my office just you know I don't I mean, my office doesn't send me to every single tournament. So um, and that that unfortunately on my schedule has been one that's gotten lost in in the shuffle. So. Uh, I hope that changes because I, I really like it. And I love to play golf there. I mean, I love the Arnold Palmer course on site there. They've got a Fazio course on site there. You know, we play a little golf, you know, myself and some media colleagues during the week while we're covering the tournament, too. So it's a, everything about it is good. And uh, I'd like to see the field get a little stronger, especially since, you know, half the freaking PGA Tour lives down there, right? So, uh, you know, you'd like to see a little bit, a bit better field down there, in my opinion. Well, thank you. We would love for you to come back, and hopefully next year when people are playing golf and watching golf and everything's back to it is, and, and hopefully the, you know, the Honda is, it was so well run this year. Uh, and it was a good tournament, and it's, a, it's just an exciting atmosphere. And we just like to see, yeah, you're right, get all the golfers that live here to play in here. But uh, we're t- we've talked to about Mark Carazano, Kenazaro of the New York Post, seven days in August, Augusta, seven days at Augusta, behind the scenes at the Masters. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.